age of 19 years old, Michael Carroll won $14.4 million in the lottery. He was a garbage man at the time. He just happened to play and happened to win. And so over the next decade of his life, from 2002 to 2012, uh, he bought massive homes, he bought cars, he bought drugs, he threw outlandish parties, he bought a lot of different things. And in the course of those 10 years, he plowed through $14.4 million and found himself living on government assistance, unemployed and broke. Today, he makes $511 per week working as a butcher. Now this is actually a common story for those who find themselves suddenly wealthy. And it kind of begs the question, when we find ourselves blessed, what do we do with it? How do we use the blessings that we receive? A lot of people would act like Michael Carroll. If we find ourselves in the middle of just flourishing out of nowhere, we use it on ourselves. And it, it didn't work out for Mr. Carroll, and it won't for us either, especially when it comes to the blessings we receive from God which is exactly what Jesus now begins to address in the Sermon on the Mount. What should we do? How should we move forward? How should we handle the blessings that we receive from God? Last week, we began our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, which kicks off talking about this list of people who are blessed, right? The Beatitudes, which is a series of eight blessed are statements. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, they were eight statements of wisdom, of grace, of mercy, of an invitation to live a life that is different than anyone had ever seen on the face of the globe. Jesus was challenging the very fabric of society with this list of Beatitudes. He made these declarations, really kind of crazy sounding statements, like when you're poor in spirit, when you're spiritually bankrupt, you are blessed the kingdom of heaven is yours. Uh, when you find yourself meek, kind of at the bottom of the pile, right? Uh, that pile is actually flipped on its head in the kingdom of God, and you're blessed. When you're persecuted, there's blessing. Regardless of what situation you find yourselves in, if you're in the kingdom, you are blessed. And that's hard sometimes for us to visualize, to rationalize, because sometimes we look around and we see circumstances and we don't necessarily consider that blessing. But if you're in the kingdom, you are blessed. Jesus' words were controversial because you had people who had never heard about this blessing before. You had people who were used to the social structures and the political structures and the relational structures where there are certain people that are always on the bottom and there are certain people who are always on the top. And Jesus says to those people on the bottom, you're blessed. And the echoes of that pronouncement by Jesus would have rippled, would have echoed off of this mountain, this Sermon on the Mount, and it would have penetrated their culture and society at large. And the question is, what happens when it does? When these people who were transformed by hearing Jesus and this radical teaching and accepting it as truth, when they leave and they begin to share and they begin to live this new truth, what happens when it does? What happens when people actually live this way and when they tell other people that this is the right way to live? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 11, and 12 that one of the things that happens is you're going to be persecuted. 
<laughs> you want to flip the social and cultural structures on their heads? You want to turn everything upside down? It's not going to go so easy with you, so just be ready for that, Jesus says. And the second thing that Jesus says happens is found in verses 13 through 16 in, in Matthew chapter 5. And this is what we're going to focus on today. And it talks about how Jesus' followers should use their blessing. Because you are blessed. The kingdom of heaven is yours. You will be comforted. You will see God. All of the blessings that the Beatitudes promise us. You will be satisfied in every way. You will receive all of these blessings from God. So what are we supposed to do when we live a blessed life? And this is where Jesus addresses that. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So Jesus begins by talking about salt. And these words are so famous that they've become a proverb in the English language, not even attached to, to matters of faith. If someone is genuine, if someone is useful, if someone is honest, if someone is straightforward, without hypocrisy, we say they are a salt-of-the-earth type of person, right? Uh, that, that goes back to this. Salt was one of the most common substances in the ancient world. Roman soldiers were paid with salt. And they would revolt if they didn't get their ration of salt. Our English word salary comes from the Latin salarium, which literally means salt money. That's, that's where we get salary from. Uh, and our expression, that man is not worth his salt, uh, is a reminder of the high value that salt had in biblical times. So let's go a step further. Salt has five primary uses. And as I go through these five uses, what I want you to do is kind of put your thinking cap on and think about the spiritual application of each one of these five different uses, purposes of salt. Now, first, salt is a seasoning. It brings out the flavor in things. It makes flavor come alive. Just pick up any cookbook, count how many recipes include salt. Uh, almost everything you eat will have some salt in it. Even cakes and pies will use a pinch of salt. Salt makes things flavorful. Second, salt is a preservative. Now, there's no doubt that this is the primary use in Jesus' time was as a preservative. Salt slows down the rate at which things go bad. Okay? It doesn't prevent the process of decay entirely, but it slows it down and keeps it from spreading. Meat left to itself will spoil, but if you cure the meat with salt, it will last a long, long time. Now third, salt stings. Uh, you've heard of pouring salt on an open wound, you know, not really a pleasant experience. Um, and I want you to understand something. We are not called as followers of Jesus we are not called to be the honey of the world, you know, and make people feel nice all the time. That's not our calling. Um, we are called to be the salt of the earth. 
Salt stings on an open wound, doesn't it? But it also saves someone from dying from gangrene on that open wound. There is a, there's a purpose in that pain. Fourth, salt gives strength. You can't live without sodium in your diet. Without it, your body grows weak very quickly. And that's one reason the Romans gave their soldiers salt. They knew that putting salt on their vegetables would give them needed strength. Uh, the word salad is related to the Latin word for salt because that's how the Roman soldiers would consume their salt rations. Now, finally, salt creates thirst. That's why they put it on potato chips and pretzels. Who owns Frito-Lay? Pepsi. It creates thirst. It causes you to, to crave something to drink. It makes sense. Um, and then after salt, Jesus talks about light. Light is illuminating. Light shines in the darkness. It helps you to see things the way that they really are and not obscured. Light provides growth. So what are both of these things? Salt and light are indispensable. You cannot live without either one of them. And so Jesus says, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We should be indispensable for this world. Now, there are also change agents. Both of them cause change. Anytime light encounters darkness, it shines. It can't help but shine. Anytime salt encounters some sort of meat or some other meal, it changes it, doesn't it? It changes it irreversibly. You can't take the salt out of the soup, folks. You oversalt the soup, you got salty soup. So you can't take the salt away. You can't change its effects. It's permanently different, both salt and light. Jesus is talking about the way you and I live in this world, bringing something the world desperately needs. Now, before we jump into the how-tos, because that's how we always want to get, right? We want to go straight to the how-to. What should I do? How do I apply this? What, what steps can I take? Let's just look at what Jesus actually says. Because I think sometimes we read this as, you bring salt, you bring light, like you've got salt in your pocket, right? Uh, and every once in a while, you take it out and you sprinkle it into a conversation. Ah, let me throw some salt in there. Uh, with your friend or your neighbor or your roommate, or you bring light and every once in a while, you light a little candle and you let it shine. Uh, but that's not what Jesus says, is it? What does he say? You are. You are these things. Not you bring these things, not you do these things, not you produce these things. You are these things. When you show up on the scene, you are salt, you are light. And there is a whole different paradigm that exists with being as opposed to doing. I think sometimes we read the Sermon on the Mount and what we walk away with is a bunch of lists of how to try harder and how to do more. Please don't read the Sermon on the Mount that way. Because it is not intended to overwhelm you with a task list of how to live like a follower of Jesus. Okay? He's talking about people who hear that they are blessed. That's why he started with the Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. He starts there. All these things that are going to accompany those who follow me, those who are my disciples. He's talking about these people who hear that they are blessed when the world says that they are the furthest thing away from being blessed. And they are transformed because of what they have heard. And they are transformed because of what they, they hear Jesus say. And it's, it's not try really hard to be salt or try really hard to be light. It's instead, it's allow my blessing to wash over your life in such a way that when you show up at your next family gathering, when you show up at your workplace, when you show up in your neighborhood park, when you show up to visit your parents, when you show up, you are 
salt. You are light. Which means that the words of Jesus have to move beyond something that we just agree with. It can't be something that we just kind of nod our head to and say, yep, amen. You do know that being a follower of Jesus is not just agreeing with Jesus. Being a disciple is more than just learning what Jesus taught. You see, the disciples thought maybe when they first started, Jesus was just going to teach them some stuff. But Jesus didn't say, hey, I'm the source of knowledge. No, he said, I am the way. You want to know how to live? You want to know how to be? Follow me. I'll show you what it looks like. And then we can now live that in turn. It's actually taking his words and saying, I'm going to build my entire life on these principles, on these promises. That's being a disciple. I'm going to let these truths sink into my soul in such a way that they shape who I become. We are those things. And I want to start here because I think it's so important that you understand the identity that you have in Jesus. To remind you who you are as citizens of heaven. Because, guys, we forget that way too often. To remind you that regardless of all the things that you have done wrong in your life, all the decisions you wish you could take back, all of the, if I could rewind, I would do that differently moments that we go through. What transcends every single one of these things, if you are in the kingdom of God, a follower of the way of Jesus, you are blessed. And don't ever forget that, and don't ever let the enemy rob you of that incredible truth that you are blessed. Even in Acts 1.8, which is this commissioning moment that Jesus gave his to his early disciples he was about to leave and he said wait for the promised Holy Spirit I will pour that out don't leave Jerusalem and then he he shares this verse and he doesn't say go and do this witnessing thing okay when when you receive the Holy Spirit you will go and you will witness everywhere no he doesn't say that he says you are witnesses you will be my witnesses. Not you will do witnessing. You will be my witnesses. It's who you are. You are people who have been transformed by the hope of the gospel. Before Jesus sends anyone out into the world, he tells them who they are in him. I want you to hear that. Before Jesus sends anyone out into the world, he tells them who they are in him. Before he sends them out, he tells them who they are. You are children of God. You are followers of Jesus, and you are blessed. Now, whenever I go to, I used to travel a whole lot more than I do. Now, when I was traveling with uh, Leadership Network, I would go to a different city in a different state, you know, at least once a month. And whenever I go to a different or a new city and I'm looking for a place to eat, when I don't know where I'm going or what's good, what do you do? open Yelp, right? I mean, you look for the Yelp reviews. What gets the highest ratings? You can search by distance around you. You can search for different types of food. And, and I want to see what other people say about the restaurants that are around there that I might be spending my money at, or in this case, the company I was working for, their money. Uh, but I've decided in the, in the past, I've decided not to go to a place because of the reviews I've read. Anybody ever done that? You're reading, you're like, oh, yeah, no. Thought I might go there, but not anymore. Um, what other people show through their photos or through the reviews that they write, it influences a lot, doesn't it? 
And I think one of the things Jesus is saying to us is you are a walking Yelp review of the kingdom of God. That's not in the Bible. Don't look for it. But you are, you are a living, breathing Yelp review of the kingdom of God. Your life reflects, whether you want it to or not, what you believe about God. What you believe about what he's come to do in and through your life. Jesus' point in these few verses in the Sermon on the Mount is that people Jesus makes alive are called to cause the world to thrive. People that Jesus makes alive are called to cause the world to thrive. To be change agents for good. That when we show up on the scene, there's salt, there's light, which are things that the world needs and things that the world benefits from. Which I think might cause us to ask the question, do we believe that we're blessed? Do we really believe we're blessed? Do you know that you are? Because that's the thing that makes a life salty. That's what causes you to live salty. That's the thing that switches on the light switch and lights the light up in your life. It's not some sort of guilt that causes us to get out in our community and do something. Oh, well, I better go talk to somebody about Jesus, fulfill my obligation. You know, it's not some sort of imperialistic undertaking that says we've got to conquer the world for Jesus. That's not what changes lives. What changes lives is people who know that they are his and then just walk with him into the world that he invites them to live in. It's not more complicated than that. The lives that we are called to live are shaped by the blessing Jesus tells us that we carry. The lives that we are called to live are shaped by the blessing Jesus tells us we carry. Now, it is impossible to be salt and be light without first knowing that you're blessed. You've got to know that you're blessed before you can be salt and light. You have to. But it is possible to be blessed and not be salt and light. Look at the way that Jesus says it. Let's first talk about salt. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, note, it's impossible for salt to lose its saltiness. You can't change its chemical makeup. How can it be made salty again? What happened in Jesus' day is salt got mixed with a bunch of impurities. It got watered down. It got diluted amongst a lot of other minerals. It's, and basically, it's just normal soil after that. It's no longer salt. It just had gotten so watered down and diluted by everything else. You think that sounds like some Jesus followers today? You just get mixed in with all the other stuff, and you've lost your separation. You've lost your purity. Peter, in his letter to the churches, says, but now you must be holy in everything you do. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. What does holy mean? Holy means set apart for a purpose. It means be different. Peter is not saying, hey, pull up your bootstraps and try really hard to be holy. That's not what Peter's saying. If you read the first part of the first chapter of 1 Peter, here's what you find out. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, you've been given a new hope into an inheritance that can never perish, can never spoil, can never fade. That's kept in heaven for you. And because of that, you are different. Once again, it's being, not doing. You are different, therefore, live like it. You don't become by doing. Doing should flow out of being. 
You don't become by doing. Well, I do this, therefore I'm a Christian. No. Doing should flow out of being because I'm a child of God, because I am blessed, because I, I inherit the kingdom. Because of that, this is how I live. It's a huge difference there. Uh, Dr. Stanley Jones, who was a famous missionary and evangelist, he was asked to name the number one problem of the church. And he replied very quickly that the number one problem was irrelevance. And he went on to say that three quarters of the opposition to the church stems from disappointment. We promise to make people different. We promise new stories, but the promise goes mostly unfulfilled. Now, 50 years have passed since he made that statement. And I'm sure that what Dr. Jones said is more true today than it was when he first said it. The number one problem of the church is irrelevance. Take a look up and down the 380 corridor this morning. Add up the attendance of all the churches in the area. Roughly 80% of people won't be in any church today. On a very good day, like Christmas or Easter, all the churches together will reach perhaps 25%. On a normal day like today, it'll be closer to 20%. Basically, the church has lost its influence in the culture today. There are plenty of reasons why this happened, but one reason I think stands out, uh, and that is the church has lost its influence because followers of Jesus, we have neglected our responsibility to be salt and light in the world. As, we've as we have neglected this, what God has called us to be, the world has decided to ignore us. And the flip side of that is also true. When we do decide to be salt and light, guess what? The world pays attention to what we say and what we do. Let me say it simply. When we are salt and light, the world listens to us. When we aren't, they don't. It's really that simple, guys. The early church loved other people. They did. God commanded them to, so they did. But it's not just the love that early followers of Jesus gave. It was the lives that they lived that was so transformative. It was their sexual ethics that they had that was built around monogamy and fidelity. That was very counterculture in a Roman-dominated society. It wasn't something that they imposed on the rest of the world, these, the early church. They didn't impose their beliefs and say, you've got to live this way too. They said, listen, because of this teaching of Jesus, because of the words of Jesus, we're convinced that this is the best way to live. Let us show you what a world like this might look like if, if we lived like this. It wasn't, you got it wrong, it was let us show you. Do you hear the difference there? And I think the church today is all about, you got it wrong, as opposed to let us show you what the right way to live is. We don't have to fix the world's problems, do we? We need to live in such a way that they wanna pursue something better. We don't have to fix the world's problems, we need to live in such a way that they wanna pursue something better. The problem is we're not showing them anything different. Let me pause on that one. Let that kind of ring out for a second. We're not showing them anything different. The surveys, the statistics are overwhelming that people who call themselves Christians who attend church every Sunday do not live any differently with regard to morality from the rest of our culture. And that's a problem. Because we're not, we've lost our saltiness. We have no light to shine. 
And Paul addresses this exact issue in the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 5, he says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. In other words, stop trying to fix your culture. Stop trying to change the behavior of sinners. They're sinners. They're going to sin. It's not rocket science. Instead, live like Jesus. Show them a better way. Be disciples. Make it obvious to those around you that you belong to Jesus by the way you live, by the way you love, by the way you treat those around you. It is our job to make sure our house is in order, to be that light, to say, listen, we're going to be distinct, we're going to be different, and we're going to shine. I've shared before about my experience in college uh, as a resident advisor. My boss, the resident director, his name was Adam, he was openly gay. And this was in 1994, so it wasn't quite as mainstream culture as it is now. But I struggled with how to interact with him. Uh, ultimately, God showed me that I needed to honor him. I needed to serve him as my boss because it was the right thing to do. And so I did. And uh, that whole year, uh, I just really did everything I could to honor him uh, as my boss. And fast forward to the end of the year, and it was graduation time, and our campus church was honoring the graduates and asked us a series of questions, and one of which was, name the faculty member who had the greatest impact on your life during your four years here at University of Illinois. And I put Adam's name down, because God used him to show me how I was supposed to love people, regardless of whether they believed like I did or lived like I did. That was irrelevant. And the church invited him to our service that Sunday, and Adam showed up. And when he left that day, he told me, Jeff, I want you to know that I almost didn't come today. Because all I've ever experienced from Christians was hatred and hypocrisy. Today changed the way that I look at Christianity. It was just such a cool moment to hear that. And I don't tell you that story to get pats on the back. The question we need to be asking is, how can we bring salt into the conversations that we have today? Into the relationships that we engage in on a regular basis? In the love that we give, in the lives that we live? What could and should that look like? How can we reject fear? How can we reject judgment? And ask the question, not what is different about my beliefs, but what's different about my life? Such a better question to ask. Let me say that again. I don't want us to miss that. I think it's incredibly important. Absolutely, our beliefs are different from the world. But that's not the question that we have for the world around us and for the way that we interact with the world. It's not. It's not what is distinct about my beliefs. It's what's distinct about my life. Am I different because of the words, the teaching, and the life of Jesus? Am I salty? All right, let's look at the next comparison now, Matthew 5, 14 and 15. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. So the first picture is of salt getting contaminated. The second picture is of a light being hidden. Now, movie theaters are back in business again. Uh, and one thing has not changed right before the movie starts there's a big graphic telling you to stay off your stinking phone. Maybe not in those words, uh, but the message is the same. Why? Because we don't want the light to contaminate the darkness, right? The whole place is supposed to be dark. 
When your phone screen lights up, everyone's attention around you is drawn to it. I'm sure you've had somebody sit in front of you or near you whose phone just kept the whole movie and you're like, ah, you know, it drives you nuts. Um, because it takes their focus. It stands out so strongly from the darkness of the theater. And if you're on your phone, someone is likely to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, can you put that thing away? This isn't the place. And they would be right. But here's the thing. I think too many Christians treat life like a movie theater. Oh, I don't want people around me to feel uncomfortable. So I'll just keep my faith turned off. I'll just keep that light in my pocket where nobody can see it. But life is not a no-phone zone, church. Jesus says the exact opposite. He says we need to let our light shine in the darkness. People's attention will be drawn to it because it stands out in the darkness. That's what Jesus taught. It will stand out so strongly. And you may even have people do the equivalent of tapping you on the shoulder and say, hey, can you not talk about that? It's just not the place. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. That's the easy way out. Don't do that. Let your light shine. Don't hide it. Let it shine. Let the blessing that God has gifted on your life shine. Let the way of his kingdom shine. Let it move through you. It's been the calling for those who follow the way of God since the beginning. Isaiah 42, verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take you by the hand and guard you, and you will be a light to guide the nations. I want you to notice that this light, it's evangelistic. In nature, it's shining the goodness of God to those who haven't heard it yet and inviting them to follow. Isaiah 60, arise Jerusalem, let your light shine for all to see, for the glory of the Lord rises to shine on you. Darkness as black as night covers all the nations of the earth, but the glory of the Lord rises and appears over you. All nations will come to your light. Mighty kings will come to see your radiance. And this is a picture of what happens when the kingdom lives in God's people. Because the world is hungry for this. People are searching for this. And the crazy thing is they don't even know it. They're starving for the truth of God's kingdom. And they are completely unaware. Because God has wired every person to want this, to desire this. And we feel empty without it. And it's up to us to show the world what it looks like. That's why you hear people say there's a God-shaped hole in every person's heart. You know, that, that, that's the principle there. Because we need that. And we're not satisfied until we find that. And Jesus' message to us is to be engaged with the world around you, with the culture around you, with the people around you. Don't slide into obscurity. Resist that. That's going to be a temptation. It really is. It's going to be more comfortable to just gather around people that think the same way as you do, who look the same way as you, who believe the same things as you. Don't go there. Don't hide your light. The world needs it. And it's the exact same thing that Jesus said as he prayed for his followers in John 17. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. Guys, it's so huge. Jesus didn't say, hey, Father, uh, keep them inside the walls of the church in their nice little holy huddles so they can stay safe. He said, no, I'm sending them out. I'm putting them on the front lines of this battle. I'm sending them into a place that is dangerous. I'm sending them into a place where it's, they're going to get persecuted. I'm sending them into a place where it's going to be uncomfortable. But God, just protect them from the evil one as they go about the work that I've called them to do. 
He sent us in the same way that he was sent. I love the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a famous theologian, puts it. He says, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. When you live invisibly as a Christian, you are denying your call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Man, let that sink in for a moment. You cannot follow Jesus and drift into obscurity. It doesn't work that way. That blessing, that light, that good is way too important to just cover it up. You've got to let it shine. Are there people in your life who aren't followers of the way of Jesus that you have meaningful relationships with? Not that are projects, but that you love, whose lives you're invested in. Are you light? Do people know you belong to Jesus? Let's be committed, Trilogy. Not to drift into obscurity, but to say back to Jesus, we want to be engaged. We want to make a difference. We want to love well this world that you've placed us in. Because Jesus did exactly that. The woman at the well comes to him. She's broken. Her life's a mess. He makes room for her in a place and a time where culturally he shouldn't have done it. A woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. Jesus is on his way. He's got his task list. He's on the move. And he stops in order to show his love and heal her. Salt and light. Jesus sees a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. There's Pharisees that want to stone her. And Jesus gets in between the Pharisees and this woman. And he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. What's he being? Salt and light. He's bringing hope. He's breathing hope into a world that needs it. He's engaged with the world around him, and he's inviting you and I to do the same. Here's how he finishes this part. Listen to what he says in Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. There's the end game. Not so that people think you're a good Christian. Not so people think you're awesome but so that everyone will praise God. Notice what Jesus doesn't say here. He doesn't say people will hear your good words. He doesn't say people will notice your great theology. The reality is that even though that may be there, they may not hear it. But what they will not be able to ignore is your life. What they can't contradict is who you are. What they will not be able to ignore is the way that your life, salt and light, points to his kingdom. And I'm convinced that people have to see God on display in us before they hear the truth about Jesus from us. People have to see God on display in us before they hear the truth about Jesus from us. Notice that doesn't say they don't need to hear the truth about Jesus from us. It just means they need to see the life lived first. We've got to bring a blending together of both practice of living life in the kingdom and proclamation that the kingdom is here. The division of those two has killed us as influencers in our culture. I love the way Peter says it, 1 Peter 2, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Each one of us represents the kingdom of God, salt and light. The question is, when people see our lives, what do they see? What do they experience? Do they experience Jesus? Do people know that you belong to Jesus because of the way you live, because of the way you treat people, because of the way you love? Is that what they see in us? Do they see salt and light? It's time that we show that together. 
I want us to do something a little different as we close this morning. Um, in just a second, I'm going to invite you to just kind of turn around where you are and just give me a small groups of three to four people. And we're just going to spend a few minutes praying for one another. And I want us to ask Jesus that he would make us self-mind. I think it's important that we just dedicate ourselves to that this morning. That we would be people who shine his light. We would be people that as we show up, we carry his light into any situation we find ourselves in. And once you kind of, you know, shift and you could stay right in your area there, get into groups. If, if you're in four people, as many people who would like to can pray for your group. It may be one person who prays. It may be two people who prays. It may be all four, whatever you're comfortable with. But I want us to take some time to pray for us as a church family to just say to Jesus, we're ready. Make us the disciples you want us to be. So let me pray for us, and then I'm going to turn you loose to get in your groups and pray. God, as we spend just a few minutes this morning praying for one another, Lord, I ask that you would let this be a, a holy moment for us. Not holy in that we feel goosebumps, but holy in that we set ourselves apart. And God, I pray that you would speak to us, challenge us, and help us more than thinking about doing, help us to think and challenge us about becoming. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.